0: Courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East.
1: Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to morningstarbooksandgifts.com that's morningstarbooksandgifts.com then click on the art and decorative link and click on icons in the drop down box or call 630-629-1720 morningstar books and gifts 28 west st charles street lombard
0: illinois Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. I hope you're enjoying this glorious Paschal season, the season of our Lord's resurrection, and how fortunate we are and how providential at this time in history that both the Eastern Christian world and the Western Christian world is celebrating this Paschal season at the same time. Oftentimes our calendars are different, especially for Easter, but this year we were on the same calendar, and that is marvelous and wonderful, as it should be, all of us as one. This Sunday after Easter, after the Paschal Sunday, is a Sunday we call in the Byzantine Catholic calendar, in many Eastern Christian calendars, we call it the Sunday of St. Thomas or Thomas Sunday. This is the day when we focus on the appearance of Jesus Christ to the apostles one week later and this time, in this appearance, Thomas is in the room. He wasn't at the first appearance with Jesus and the apostles, but later on he is. And one week later, Jesus appears to the apostles in the upper room, and this time Thomas is there. And this is a very special day for us because it's a day of reunion. It's kind of a day of a homecoming. And many Eastern Christian churches on this Sunday of Thomas, they have a dinner, kind of a sharing of the Easter foods and other foods as well, especially of a certain bread called the artos, which basically means bread. It's a bread that's blessed, distributed to all the people. It's a symbolic of this unity that we're all back together again like the apostles were with Christ. Remember he told them that I would see you again in Galilee, which many scripture scholars believe was kind of symbolic, meaning I'll see you again in better times, like the old times we used to have in Galilee before things went bad, at least to an extent they went bad when he died on the cross and suffered. But of course, he made all things new by his resurrection. And what happened was he did meet them symbolically again in Galilee. They came back together again in triumph, Christ's body and soul together. And in the account of this meeting with St. Thomas and the apostles, there are specific details in which John highlights in his gospel that are going to be very significant for us and for our celebration observance of this day of St. Thomas. But before we go on with that, I just want to pause for a moment, welcome all of our listeners, all of, especially all of our new listeners, our listeners who are listening in prison. I want to remind you of some remarkable events coming up. These are the Orientali Lumen Conferences, and they are held in three different places, one of which is Istanbul and these conferences bring together great minds and great speakers from all over the Eastern Christian world. They're very educational, a lot of fun, there's a lot of tourism, and just a whole lot of learning and fellowship. I've attended many of them, even the one in Istanbul. I've even spoken at some of them. We have a lot of esteemed speakers, and if you want to get information on that, I simply would invite you to go to their website, which is olconference.com. That's olconference.com. You can register online. And the dates, again, are June 7th to the 10th. That's at Seton Hall University in South Orange, New Jersey. And also June 21st to the 24th. That's at the Pope John Paul II Cultural Center in Washington, D.C. And then the big one in Istanbul, Turkey, which takes place July 5th to the 8th, 2010. As I mentioned, Istanbul, Turkey fascinating time you'll have there. I attended one of them a few years ago. You'll get to visit the Fanar, which is the sort of the Vatican of the Greek Orthodox Church, and you'll tour other things such as Ephesus and some of the great churches there, Hagia Sophia. So it's a fascinating time, fascinating opportunity if you really want to learn a whole lot more about the Eastern churches, to experience them, especially in Istanbul, and also to, well, have fellowship with other Eastern Christians. But there are people of all kinds of persuasions and backgrounds that come on these tours and on these Oriental Lumen conferences. Largely, they're Eastern Christians, but not exclusively. So it's a great place to meet some very interesting people and rub shoulders with some of the greatest minds in the Eastern church today. So once again, the Oriental Lumen conferences Go to olconference.com. That's olconference.com. We really enjoy hearing from you, and we got a letter recently from a listener who uh, took some issue with some things that I said, so we appreciate that as well. His name is Michael, and Michael writes this. He said, thank you for your Light of the East series. It's very interesting and inspiring. However, let me explain my reservations regarding some certain episode. Well, here are some of the things that Michael takes exception to. He said that the mission of St. Cyril Methodius was aimed at Great Moravia, inhabited by Western Slavs, whose descent are Czechs, Slovaks, and Poles, and not at Rus, inhabited by the Eastern Slavs, whose descendants are Ukrainians, Belarusians, Russians, carpatho and Lemkos, etc. In other words, what Michael is saying here is that I said that St. Cyril Methodius's mission was to the Rusan people. That's one of the things he's taken issue with. Well, actually, we're both right. St. Cyril and mission was aimed at greater Moravia, not just great, but greater Moravia, which included the area that we know was inhabited by the people of Rus. I'm going to read something from a source. This is from the great scholar of the Slavic Christian churches, Father Athanasius Pekar, and this is taken from the Byzantine leaflet series, which can be obtained at the Byzantine Seminary Press in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And just to answer Michael's question about this piece of history, Father Athanasius writes this. He said, On their journey to Moravia, the Holy Brothers Cyril Methodius proceeded along the Tiza River to the northern part of Bulgaria, where they intended to follow the so-called Salt Route, connecting our salt mines of Marmarish with Central Europe, all the way to Moravia and Bohemia. Northern Bulgaria was, at the time, already populated by our ancestors, who were ruled by their own princes, recognizing the Bulgarian suzerainty. They populated both sides of the Tis River, and their land extended deep into present Transylvania and Hungary. St. Cyril Methodius recognized the peculiarity of the language and customs of our ancestors and called their land Rus. Thus, our ancestors began to call themselves Russi, Rusini, children of Rus. Rusini, modified by Latin, is Ruthenians. Having arrived in the land of our ancestors, which they called Rus, St. Sir Methodius were not able to continue their journey to Moravia because of the German invasion. So they remained among our Ruthenian ancestors until the summer of 864 AD, preaching to them the gospel of Christ. Thus, between 863 and 864 AD, our ancestors became Christianized by the apostles of the Slavs and began to worship Almighty God in our beautiful Byzantine Rite, but in its Slavonic form that was understood even by the simple people. Seeing the great success of their mission among our ancestors, St. Cyril Methodius provided them with their own bishop and necessary priests. And Father Athanasius goes on. It's a very interesting little leaflet series that's put out by the Byzantine Seminary Press. So, as you can see from here, St. Cyril Methodius did evangelize the Slavs, but not only them, but they were the first to in this entire region. Michael also said that their mission was in 863 and not in 865, and that that is correct. As you heard me read here, between 863 and 864 is when they basically Christianize this area that we know as the land of Rus, which is the Carpathian mountain area, which is the foothills of the great Tatra mountains in central Europe. If I said 865, I must have made a mistake, but I meant 863. So Michael is right. 863 is when St. Sir Methodius evangelized what we know as the Rusin people. He also brings up something very interesting. The mission did not use a strictly Byzantine liturgy. It was rather a Byzantine Roman pastiche. Well, it's interesting question, Michael. I've often heard that said. The question is, what exactly was the liturgy that Sir Methodius used. We believe, most scholars believe primarily it was a Byzantine liturgy and primarily they brought the Byzantine spirituality to this region of Europe. One of the reasons we know that is because they were sent by the Byzantine patriarch. In other words, they were part of the patriarch of Constantinople. So that was the particular rite or style of expression practiced in that region of the world at the time. It was what we now know as the Byzantine rite or the Byzantine expression of the church, the Byzantine liturgy, the Byzantine spirituality of the one same faith. So, largely, the liturgy and the spirituality was Byzantine, although was it as purely Byzantine as we know it today? Well, Michael has a good point. We don't know. We pro- Probably it was not. At the same time, we have to realize that liturgy does evolve. Liturgy always evolves. There are certain things that stay basically pretty much the same, but there is also an oftentimes an evolution. Liturgy develops organically and develops by different influences over time. We're going to talk more about Cyril Methodius and also entertain these questions from our listener Michael when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya. You're listening to Light of the East.
1: And now, words of wisdom, faith, and mystery from the monk's cell.
2: Matins this morning was hard work. It was hot last night. It was humid. So much for that dry heat in the desert. I didn't sleep well. 4 a.m. came very early. Oh, God, I said, does it have to be so hard? Well, the fathers have something to say about this. Perseverance, they called that virtue. Work, putting in effort. This is how we invest ourselves in what's important. Now, it's not about earning something. What God gives us is far too big, infinitely big to be earned. He gives us Himself. Now, it's not about earning, it's about valuing what we receive. Not about earning, about owning. By work taking risks, risking perhaps that what we're doing will not bear fruit, at least not immediately. By putting in effort, we come to value what God has given us. One of the fathers of the desert defined a monk's life as nothing but toil. But the same could be said for any life in this world, husband, wife, parent, employee anyone who labours to build up the kingdom. It's all toil. St. Isaac the Syrian said, toil for God's sake and sweat in his husbandry precede hope in him. It's not enough to believe in God. Faith has need of labours also and confidence in God is the good witness of the conscience born of undergoing hardship for the virtues. I'm Father Maximus Jokirios.
1: Hrmonline.org listening to the choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you...
0: That's TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Live the East on this grand and glorious time of our Lord's resurrection. On this particular day is Thomas Sunday, and I mentioned a few things about that, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. Just want to finish answering some of the questions from our good listener, Michael. Michael also wanted to correct me by saying the alphabet created by St. Cyril was not Cyrillic, it was glagolithic. Well, that is true. Well, once again, both are correct. It was glagolithic, but later became known as the Cyrillic alphabet because it was attributed to Cyril. At least he had developed it. He based it on what was his own alphabet from, of course, his own heritage, which was Greek. And then it was modified to become what we know today as the Cyrillic alphabet. But it was also known as Glagolithic. I'm not sure exactly what Michael heard on that particular program when I talked about this previously, but the Old Church Slavonic is something that I often say is something like modern-day Russian, or kind of like an old Russian. I don't mean to say that it is Old ancient Russian, it is like that. It's just kind of a point of reference, and Michael is correct. It is also like an ancient Bulgarian, but most people are more familiar with Russia and the Slavonic from the Slavic churches, like the Russian Church, or it's used oftentimes in Ruthenian Church and sometimes Ukrainian Church. So I usually use the phrase "an old Russian" as a point of familiar reference. So anyway, we hope Michael that some of these answers were helpful to you and we do appreciate you listening that closely to our program and taking the time to write into us and we certainly welcome all of you to write into us or give us a call here at Light of the East. We really appreciate hearing from all of you. As I mentioned today is Thomas Sunday, a Sunday of reunion, of coming together, a kind of a homecoming as Christ was there with the apostles so are we together as parish communities. And parish communities across the, many of the Eastern churches on this day have various kinds of meals. As I mentioned earlier, we bless an artos bread and we divide that up and share it with everyone. It's a sign of our unity together. But also, there are different kinds of foods that are served. They're similar to the Easter foods, and sometimes it's a good old-fashioned parish potluck. But whatever it is, it's a coming together and a fellowship and a sharing of food in the spirit of the coming together of the apostles with Christ in the upper room. For the first time, they were all together. This time, Thomas was there. It was about a week after Christ's resurrection. Now, we all know the story about Thomas and how we sometimes call him Doubting Thomas. Well, what's really interesting about this particular day in the Eastern calendar is that, once again, it plays upon paradox to bring across a truth. That's one of the great geniuses of the Eastern Church. We're very much at home in paradox. We love complementarity. We love contrast. We love where two things seem to be opposite or contradictory, yet they come together. And that's where we live. We live in that Juncture of paradox. And this is especially seen in the liturgical prayers, the texts for the day. Example, in the mountain service for the speech of St. Thomas in the Byzantine church, we sing this By his unusual impudence, Thomas the twin made us profit from his doubts of faith. By his unbelief, he dispelled the ignorance and darkness for the world. For himself, he wove a crown of immortality, saying to Christ, You are the Lord. To you belong praise and great glory. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, and the God of our fathers. Then here's another place. It says this, O marvelous wonder! The lack of faith gave birth to a certainty of faith. For Thomas said, Unless I see, I will not believe. Therefore, when he touched your side, he acknowledged that you were the incarnate Son of God, and knew that you truly suffered in the flesh. And thus he proclaimed your resurrection from the dead, saying, My Lord and my God, glory to you. Did you hear the contrast there? The lack of faith gave birth to a certainty of faith. Also, in the opening line, it might be familiar to you if you know a little bit about St. Augustine, where he refers original sin as, Oh, happy fault. Kind of a contradiction there as well. We start out this verse by saying, Oh, marvelous wonder. How could someone's lack of faith be a marvelous wonder? Well, in the same way that, in a sense, original sin was only because of Christ's redemption, it occasioned Christ coming to earth and redeeming us. Well, in the same way, Thomas's lack of faith occasioned, then, a great testimony of faith, not only on his part, but on everyone's part. In fact, we say in the Byzantine church that the whole purpose, the whole point of the whole scripture of Jesus coming down on earth was actually summed up in these words of Thomas. Imagine, Jesus takes someone who is a doubter, and he makes him say the most important words you can possibly say, and that very simply is, my Lord and my God. God became flesh, came onto this earth, lived, loved, healed, preached, taught, prayed, suffered, died, rose, and ascended just so that we, and all humanity, for all times, could say of this Jesus Christ, this second person of Trinity, this incarnate God, we would say of him, You truly are my Lord and my God. And that's one of the reasons why this Sunday is so big in the Eastern churches. It's because of these words that come paradoxically through someone who was a doubter, who had a certain lack of faith. Let's listen to another prayer. Manifesting the brightness of your divinity, you appeared even though the doors were closed, O Lord. Standing in the midst of your disciples, you uncovered your side and showed them the wounds of your hands and feet, delivering them from the sadness that had overcome them. You spoke to them clearly and said, As you see, my friends, I have assumed flesh. I am not a pure spirit. He spoke to the disciple who had doubted and asked him to touch your wounds, saying, Explore my wounds and doubt no longer. The disciple touched you with his hand, and he discovered both your divinity and humanity. Filled with fear, he cried out in faith, My Lord and my God, glory to you. Now, you notice there's another interesting detail that I mentioned earlier, and this is picked up in John's account of this event, and that is that Christ appears in the upper room although the doors were locked, they were closed, and that's a significant detail. In fact, we understand that detail later on in this prayer when Jesus says, As you see, my friends, I have assumed flesh. I am not a pure spirit. Okay, now why would Jesus say that? Why would this be emphasized in the prayer of the Eastern Church on this Thomas Sunday? Because this little detail, just like the little phrase from Thomas, is tremendously profound. What's happening here is Jesus is appearing to the apostles in the form that we will all be one day in heaven, if we make it to heaven. And that is that we are not just pure spirit. Our soul separating from our bodies and going on, hopefully to heaven, is not the end of the story. Jesus is not pure spirit, neither are we. Nor is he pure body, neither are we. But he is body and soul together. Body and soul combined, integrated, the way he was always meant to be. Remember, Jesus is the new Adam. He is the human person as it was meant to be. He's sort of like plan A of God's plan for the human race. Plan B was the fall and how he had to come and redeem us. That was plan B. Plan A was that he would not have had to come to redeem us. We would remain gloriously human, body and soul intact, like Christ at the resurrection, like the Virgin Mary at her assumption or her dormition, as we call it in the Eastern Church. Body and soul intact is one. We are spirit and body, body and spirit. Not either or, and Jesus demonstrates this by passing through the closed door. That's the first important detail, which means he was almost like a ghost, almost like something spiritual that just passed through the door. He didn't open the door; he passed through the door, which means he was very spiritual. But at the same time, he tells Thomas, "Look at my wounds. Look at my body. Actually, touch them." Now Thomas touches them, and they must have been that real to him to make him finally believe. If Christ was just a pure spirit. Thomas may not have believed, but he touched the actual wounds. They were still there. How could this be? How could he have this body just as real as it was when he was on the cross, yet it passes through a closed door? We don't know. All we know is this is how it was meant to be at the beginning and how it will be for all of us in the end, when our bodies and souls are reunited once again, gloriously transfigured, living with God in one another in heaven forever. And that is the great miracle of Jesus' resurrection, and that is the great meaning of this marvelous day of Thomas Sunday, the Sunday of St. Thomas. Hope you have enjoyed this Sunday. Hope you enjoy its foods, its fellowship, and above all, I hope you will enjoy the realization that we were meant for a great supernatural destiny to have our bodies and souls once again reunited gloriously forever in heaven. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Thank you for listening on Light of the East.
1: Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright.
0: CatholicRadioInternational.com